We've got orcs in police uniforms, clowns in the sewers, and dudes in a map. Chris here for Totally Sort Of. On this week's episode, Darren and I both check out some movie releases that are not exactly new, but new to us. We talk about Bright and It, as well as the board game Mythic Battles Pantheon and the comic book series East of West. Finally, Darren will bring us home with the take-home top three, talking about his favorite movie and TV scores. Check it out. Welcome to Totally Sort Of, the podcast. It's sort of like a review show and totally like catching up with your best friend. I'm Darren. I'm Chris. We're going to tell you what you totally need to check out this week and what's sort of worth skipping. Shall we get into the things that we have done this week that are not directly related to our podcast? That would be sort of totally random stuff. It would be. Do you have anything like that? So I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but I did want to mention a podcast episode that I really enjoyed. It's uh, from a show called Writing Excuses, which is a podcast that's been going for years and years and years and covers uh, fantasy authors and sci-fi authors and just talks about the craft of writing for those things. But I came across this episode, which was about food in fantasy novels. And as we've mentioned a few times, I've been on the hunt for a new food podcast. So this episode has one of my favorite authors, Scott Lynch. So we've talked about uh, Scott Lynch and his Gentleman Bastard series yes, before. Yeah, so uh, it was Scott Lynch and his wife, uh, Elizabeth Bear, who is also a sci-fi author, talking about just writing about food in fantasy novels. And I understand uh, food is not the most realistically portrayed aspect of fantasy novels. Well, that was one of the the kind of nuggets that I enjoyed was uh, talking about how kind of the staple of your swords and sorcery fantasy novel is that, you know, at the end of a, a hard day's hike, our intrepid heroes sit down around the campfire for some rabbit stew. But stew actually takes hours and hours and hours to make. So it's probably not the best pick for your adventurer's camp dinner. Really what they're winding up with is meat dipped in water? Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, spitted on a stick rabbit might be a little better, uh, more realistic portrayal there. Anyways, it was a, just a cool, fit, fun 15-minute little listen uh, that talks about, you know, how food, when done well, can be a, a good way for, um, you know, for world building and to tell you what the characters are thinking and what their station is. And it was really kind of an interesting thing, but with lots of... Uh, fun little little jokes and asides within it. So is the overall theme of writing excuses about these sort of realistic problems in the way things are written in fantasy and sci-fi? Uh, no, it's really just a broader um, show. It's an interview show with authors, but about not just about, you know, the topics of their books, but about actually writing. The craft of writing? Yeah. Almost any author you enjoy within the, the fantasy sci-fi realm has probably been on the show. So I'll find somebody I like and look them up. Yeah, for sure. We'll put a link up to this little mini episode that I, I mentioned. Like I said, it's only 15 minutes and uh, it's some good fun. How about you? What's uh, What's been going on with you this week? I went to Boston for the weekend to watch the Eastern Regional Finals for the NCAA Men's Division I Basketball Championship, more commonly known as March Madness. March Madness, okay. 
it was actually a couple of games because you get tickets for separate sessions so we saw two games for the sweet 16 on friday night and then we saw the runoff game for the elite eight on sunday afternoon so what was the uh, stadium experience like there for you it's wild i i love the uh, ncaa games i've been going to buffalo whenever the mm-hmm. uh there are uh championship matches being held in uh, Buffalo just because it's so close and I can drive there but yeah. uh, we had such a good time last year that we really wanted to go again this year and there was no close uh, drivable site so we just decided to go all out and go to the next round and uh, head to Boston it's just huge right there's nothing comparable in Canada to yeah. the NCAA Final Four path to the championship so what what, what like what was the actual uh, venue like no, it's at TD Gardens, which is the Boston Garden where the Celtics okay. play basketball and where awesome. the Bruins play hockey. It is the stadium with the most sports championship banners hanging in the rafters of any <laughs> stadium in North America. Cool. You think next year you're going to find another location and make that a, a March Madness outing? Every year, the locations kind of get picked in the same way as uh, sort of Olympics locations get picked. So it's not always okay. in the same place every year. And next year, there isn't a reasonably close, easy to get to location. Hartford, Connecticut is the closest one. And the year after, the Eastern Regionals are going to be in New York City at Madison Square Gardens. I think I'm going to look into that. Cool. All right, well, why don't we head on into the Week in Geek? Sounds good. So I understand you've been watching or you checked out the Netflix movie Bright this week. As I was on a plane this weekend, I had a perfect opportunity to watch it from start to finish. What'd you think? I liked it. I understand, and I know it got relatively terrible critics' reviews, <laughs> but real people who saw it actually gave it relatively reasonable reviews, and yeah. that's sort of my perspective of it. I, I thought it was relatively reasonable. Uh, this is a, written by Max Landis. He actually wrote one of my all-time favorite horror films, American Werewolf in London. Nice, yeah. And he also wrote Victor Frankenstein and some others, and uh, David Ayer directs it. I wasn't actually that surprised to see that David Ayer was the, the scriptwriter for Training Day, that police drama. Okay, I can see that. Which is really what Bright is. Yeah, we should back up a little bit and give people who might not have heard of this a little synopsis. It's uh, basically not a buddy cop, but a new forced partnership cop movie starring Will Smith. And who is the orc? The orc is Joel Edgerton. So a little weird mix of fantasy and and urban setting with uh, cops and elves and Uh, orcs all cohabiting in LA. I I saw it myself and I wasn't hugely impressed. It was okay. I I wasn't massively disappointed because I'd also read uh, some pretty bad reviews of it, but yeah, it was all right. Yeah, I thought it was okay. I kind of wish that uh, with regards to the orcs that they'd gone sort of full orc appearance (laughs) when really what we got were basically big bulky bald humans with uh, shaved heads and sort of mottled green or brown skin pointy ears and slightly bigger teeth i I thought it would have been more fun if they'd really looked like 
like orcs. I also felt like I wanted a little more backstory to some of the things that they kept mentioning. I, I realized that every movie can't be three hours long and go into full exposition about every aspect of its background and story, but you generally got the idea that the background was as if Lord of the Rings was basically our medieval history and that the mm -hmm. orcs had sided with the Dark Lord and everybody still held it against them but society had moved on but there were a bunch of little things that I they mentioned throughout the course of the film that I kind of thought yeah it would be kind of cool to know a little bit more about that uh, they sort of talk about the orc clans and uh, Jacoby the uh, the orc a uh, cop buddy in the show talks about being unaligned to a clan and uh, so not fitting into either world growing up and that never really gets fully explored. The yeah. organization, the Shield of Light, which is mentioned a couple of times in the film and it seems generally like they were an organization that was preparing for the return of the Dark Lord and prepared to fight against him, but they never really got into any of that background or how they came about or what they really were yeah what'd you like about it i generally like that cop individual partnership drama and mm -hmm. like i said i wasn't surprised to find out that david Ayer was responsible for training day because this was really more the cop drama which is a little more serious a little more gritty rather than like a lethal weapon sort of happy-go-lucky yeah. buddy relationship. I thought the world was interesting, although I wanted to see it more fleshed out, the whole idea that everyone was still coexisting. You got a glimpse of Elf Town and some idea of the stratified hierarchy of that society, which I thought was kind of interesting. They mentioned dwarves, I think, a couple times. We didn't see any, but they mentioned them, I think, right? Yeah, they do. The one orc talks about throwing a party and inviting yeah. everybody and includes dwarves in that list yeah. of people that they invited. I thought they actually did a good job with the elves. I thought the elves looked elven, <laughs> which is kind of hard to do and was one of my main beefs with the Lord of the Rings movies um, was that Liv Tyler just didn't look like an elf at all to my eyes. But, you know, that's that's a totally minor quibble but um the lead will smith uh, i mean he he was kind of phoning it in or his character was pretty uninspired but man he can carry a movie like that like he can do that kind of role in his sleep so he alone made it pretty watchable i would describe it as solid and watchable if not fantastic and although i thought the story was not completely unique in terms of an idea for a contemporary fantasy story it was kind of unique that this thing actually got made and that was enough for me to to show some interest in it well regardless of what we or the critics or anybody else thought of it we are getting a second one the december netflix ordered a sequel uh, apparently the writer is out and david ayer will be writing and directing the sequel It'll be something to look forward to. I did think that, uh, you know, the, the two main characters were interesting enough as a duo that uh, I'd, I'd totally check out a second movie. Yeah, and again, although it was generally panned by critics, Netflix, who's usually relatively reluctant to release numbers uh, in any exact measure, did uh, release that in the first two weeks it was the most streamed movie in an initial two-week release period of anything that they've ever had so they hmm. must have been happy with its numbers if not with the reviews 
Yeah, this week I watched something that's been around for a while, too, that I think you've already seen. I saw the uh, recent release of Stephen King's It. I did. I saw it in the theater when it was out. So I kind of enjoyed this while I was watching it, but the more I think about it in hindsight, the less impressed I was. How did you like it? I liked it because I thought the the kid cast was really quite good. Mm-hmm. And I thought they really pulled it off for me in the movie. Uh, obviously, the effects, uh, I can't help but compare to the uh, original TV <laughs> miniseries. and The atrocious, uh, almost epically famous ending of the original. Yes, the uh, vacuum cleaner hose armed spider. Yeah, that was pretty bad. Yes. I enjoyed this one. Um, I think they did some good things. I like that they decided to split the story. Um, The original novel was set kind of dual time period, both doing the kids as kids and then revisiting their characters as grown-ups. I like that they chose to just split it into the kids. And uh, I agree with you that it was a pretty good cast. But um, other than that, I don't know, I had some real problems with it. Like, I think it really felt like a Cole's Note version of a, a story that was meant to be a long, involved story. And I think what happened was all of these kids are being tormented by this evil presence that has its own way of scaring everybody and it it feeds on fear. But I didn't think they developed any of the stories enough apart from maybe the character of Beverly. None of the other characters really got enough development for their scary scene to be other than just kind of a, here's the scary part. There was no ambiguity about you know, is this really happening? Is it in their head? It was just, okay, now it's this kid's turn to, to get visited by Pennywise the Clown. Right, you didn't get the deep-seated way in which Pennywise had sort of burrowed his way into the psyche of each of these kids so that when they eventually come back, you understand the what they each have to overcome. Yeah, and instead of kind of a figuring it out and a realization of what was happening, it was just kind of announced yeah, it's this monster and it feeds on everybody's fear and everybody has a fear. What's your fear? So I don't know, it kind of diminished the scariness a lot. A couple other things that I, I had to point out, the haunted house or the, you know, the root of evil in the house, in the town was just so over the top, cartoony, haunted house looking. I, I just could not buy that. Yeah, that anybody walked by that place on a day-to-day basis and went, what is this haunted house doing on the corner of our street? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, you know, if I were to see a a house like that in my neighborhood, I'd think, hmm, is someone shooting a movie? Is Tim Burton vacationing? Like, really? It was so, like, just cheesy, over-the-top, gray, dead, just not even remotely plausible that it would be just something that existed in a real town. What did you think of Pennywise himself? I liked the Pennywise character. I liked, uh, I mean, obviously with the effects they have now, they could make him uh, change and morph and make his uh, all of his expressions look realistic and kind of scary. I thought he looked good. I kind of liked him, kind of didn't. I, I think the problem was the best Pennywise scene was the first Pennywise scene, and... That was a really kind of creepy intro and a great little performance. After that, um, I felt like they were just trying every technique in the book to make him demonic or scary or weird. And some of those techniques really worked and some of them didn't. So it was, I like that 
he was really kind of changing and morphing and doing different things and they played with his size and proportions that was that was pretty cool but i thought for every cool creepy effect they did with him there were two or three that just totally fell flat for me so anyways it was it was a fun movie but uh it it was almost more like a thriller than a horror movie to me it really just didn't achieve a lot of scares so it was it was kind of neat, and I appreciated it as someone who's read the book, but I don't know how much of the depth um, of the book would come through for someone who hadn't read it. Yeah, maybe a good piece of editing, but a bad piece of storytelling. Sounds fair. I wanted to talk about a comic, an ongoing series that I delved back into this week. I saw this in the show notes, so um, this is something that I believe I've read a little bit of, but not very much. So the book that I wanted to talk about is East of West, uh, published by Image Comics, created by writer Jonathan Hickman, who I'm uh, quite a fan of, illustrated by Nick Dragota. It's been running since 2013. The reason why I'm talking about it this week is one of the things I did outside of watching Bright on the plane was to catch up on a couple of uh, issues that I'd missed, so I am caught up on East of West. Cool. So uh, it's a really neat kind of... I don't know if I'd say dystopian. It's kind of an alternate history, isn't it? It is sort of an alternate history. The idea being that the Civil War never ended. It just kept expanding. And what eventually happens is that the United States becomes fragmented into a number of kingdoms. So you wind up with six nations uh, within the United States of America, which eventually become seven because they continue to war until a comet strikes the earth in 1908, causing Mm -hmm. mass panic and destruction across the U.S., which is what finally brings them together to stop the conflict because now they need to focus on survival and the place where they have this Uh, meeting and form this armistice becomes a separate state designed to keep the rest of them all together. So you wind Hmm. up with what becomes known as the Seven Nations of America. That sort of gives you your background of uh, history and political structure of the no longer United States. But then what happens is there's this prophecy that gets built up through a number of proclamations from various people that when put together becomes this message, the message leading towards Armageddon and the end of the world. Do we know like in the in the comic where like is it set in modern day with all of this as history or is it set in like the 1900s? It's essentially modern day. The last portion of the prophecy comes out in 1958 and that's what triggers the start of sort of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse rise with the last portion of the prophecy and then go about fulfilling the prophecy, which will lead to the end of the world. And Mm. so what happens, though, is that uh, you've got your four horsemen, death, war, famine, and conquest, marching across the no longer United States, attempting to bring about the prophecy leading to the end of the world. Death falls in love They have a son and he loses interest in their mission to bring about the apocalypse and he takes off to go live with her and raise their child. That sort of can't hold. Something happens which they haven't quite explained yet but it leads to the three horsemen other than death dying. Death being separated from his wife and child and believing that they have died and the story then starts with issue one 10 years later after this event with 
the three horsemen being resurrected and they're angry because hmm. death has betrayed them. The three horsemen decide uh, the best way to get revenge is to get back on track and bring about the apocalypse. Death is on this killing spree across America trying to find the people responsible for the death of his wife and child, eventually finding out that his wife and child are still alive. And hmm. all of the seven nations are in this sort of uh, what starts as sort of antagonism building into manipulation, covert action, all building towards full-on conflict as the story marches closer to the apocalypse. So I have to ask you, uh, just from hearing the, the rundown and the backstory and the world, um, are we talking about a huge cast of characters here? Yes, huge cast okay. of characters because you've got... Um, the leaders of each of the seven nations, uh, mm -hmm. a couple of underlings in each nation that also has a significant part as a character. Then you've got your three horsemen, you've got Death and his wife and his child. And So how's it holding up? You said uh, it's been running since 2013 um, as, a, as a longer term story. It's, it's a really cool setup. I read the first trade paperback of it and it was really an interesting world, but I haven't carried on with it. How's it uh, aging? It's been great. It's probably been my number one book since 2013. I don't know about you, but I use this uh, general expression about uh, continuing to hope that they don't Wachowski it as a general expression, meaning take something that was awesome and completely screw it up before you get to the end, a la right. The Matrix. And every once in a while over, I guess it's been five years now, I've been like, oh my God, please don't let him Wachowski this because I love this book so much. And he's always kind of brought it back. There was about five issues last year where I was kind of worried about uh, and it seemed to be wandering a bit, but it's gotten right back in and the story's moving towards something huge and uh, which I'm eagerly anticipating each issue to see what's going to happen. So I think that he's done a great job keeping it going and keeping it interesting and continually moving this giant story in this huge cast of characters forward awesome so that title again east of west east of west i'm gonna have to pick up some more and uh catch up on it you i understand have been playing some board games this week always with the board games yeah so this week i wanted to talk a little bit about a game called mythic battles colon pantheon so this is a an updated release of a game by yellow called mythic battles which was a perfectly restrained little 35 40 dollar box mini battle game and it got the kickstarter pimp treatment into this 300 dollars giant you know 12 box 100 miniature sprawling package i got to play it is this something you bought or is this something someone in your gaming group bought no uh one of my gaming buddies tends to to buy a lot of miniatures based games so we often play miniatures based games it's really not my favorite kind of game by any stretch of the imagination but this was a really good one um this was that rare occasion where we finished playing and you know i was ready to play another game of it right away and that almost never happens with me in those kinds of games well, that's a good test though so the cool thing about this one is often miniature battle games, they have huge rule sets, tons of different characters and units and abilities and rules. And there's, you know, everybody has 12 different special abilities and statistics. And by the time I get the concept of what 
the game is all about. It's over, and I don't really feel like playing it again. That's typically my my experience with war games. But this one, it does a few things nicely that really kind of keep things nice and clean. One is um, it's more or less a one-on-one game. We played two-on-two, but really we were each just kind of dueling each other. You don't have a huge army. You have a god or goddess, a hero, and two or three troops. So you have a small, a medium, and a large, basically. It has a nice little dice system. The attacks were pretty straightforward, but the dice system, they call it exploding dice, where basically if you roll a six, you can kind of double that and try and get bonuses. They also had a a hand management system with cards. So you had a pool of cards that would tell you which of your guys get to move or or act in any given turn. So you might really want to use your medium-sized guy, but if you don't have the card for it, you can't. So it used a, a lot of really clever mechanics to make, you know, what could have been a very convoluted, complicated game quite interesting. The point where I sometimes get lost in those games is where there's a ruler involved. Is there a ruler involved? There's no ruler. There's just uh spaces. So the board, the maps actually have kind of spaces laid out on them, and uh, most of the characters can move one or two spaces, and that's it. So no measuring. Uh, But it just had some really neat things, and and the victory condition was pretty straightforward. You either, if your god died, you're you're out and you lose, or there were these little kind of power shards uh, around the map, and if you could collect uh, four of them on your team, you would win. It was really straightforward, but it just, you know, I got to play uh, Athena and Hercules and a couple of centaurs, so that was just fun. At one point I got to... uh, you know, Hercules got to pick up uh, a, a big marble column and chuck it into the next space and smash a couple of guys. So You mentioned uh, gods from a specific pantheon. Is it multi-pantheon or is it all Greek mythology based? So this one delves deep into uh, Greek mythology and uh, just Greek mythology. So I suspect if they do future releases, they might uh, do another one, but this is all Greek. Um, yeah, it was it was really well done. I hesitated to uh, talk about it on the show, though, for one reason and one reason only, and that's the Kickstarter component means that um, it's basically not available in stores. This was such a big, expensive package that the, the publisher decided we're not even going to sell it through retail. We're just going to do it on Kickstarter, and that's that. So here's a game that we liked and enjoyed that you can't find. Pretty much. Uh, you can you can find a copy on eBay, and I understand they're going to be doing a second Kickstarter in June. Or go find somebody you know who has a copy. That's my favorite strategy. All right, I think that's both of our Week in Geek, and we have another segment this week, which we have entitled, Always Gotta Look. He is a loathsome, offensive brute, yet I can't look away. We're always talking about those movies or TV shows, movies pretty much, that you can't get on enough of. And I wanted to give a shout out to The Winter Soldier. Uh, it is one of my favorite of the Marvel movies. Yeah, I, it's one of my favorites too. But the, the thing in particular that I want to talk about is the opening segment for Winter Soldier. That great little... 10 15 minute mini mission where uh cap parachutes down well doesn't parachute down plummets down from a helicopter onto the uh to the ship and proceeds to just kick butt like nobody's business i love that scene it is great and uh i love the little easter egg throwback to who the villain is in that scene 
Yes, Batrock the Leaper. <laughs> Without the insane purple pants and yellow mask. Yeah, although they did, you know, kind of uh, tease the color scheme of, of his original costume. Yep. Yeah, so th- that's just one of those scenes that um, I can watch over and over and over again. And there are times when I want to watch like 20 minutes of action, I will just pull up the opening of that movie and watch it. It, uh, it never gets old, and it proves my long-running theory that you've been forced to listen to this theory for many years, um, that uh, that action movies all need to, to do this James Bond-style start, which is a little mini-mission at the start, just gets everybody happy and gets everybody in the mood for a great action movie. I think it really works, too, because you can give people more of what they want without cluttering your overall narrative. Like when you go back to the third Spider-Man film where everybody wants more and more villains in the movies, but then you see what happens with Spider-Man 3 where you throw in multiple villains and try and run three different narratives in a movie. These little intros that are, as you said, James Bond style. You have a separate mini mission. You can showcase another villain. You get in, you resolve it, you get out. Everybody gets their big action sequence at the beginning. They get another Easter egg hero or villain at the beginning Mm -hmm. and then you move into your narrative yeah it's a it's a great formula and uh i i was kind of going back through the catalog of um mcu movies to see and i think this was the first uh marvel movie to use this formula but a lot of them since then have followed in in suit so um i'm feeling pretty vindicated about this There's the great little sequence where the Avengers are raiding the Hydra base at the beginning of Age of Ultron. The second Guardians of the Galaxy did this quite well. Yeah, there's a great scene at the beginning of Black Panther where he goes to get his uh, girlfriend Nakia because he wants her back in Wakanda for his coronation. Oh wait, you, you haven't seen that though. All right. I know I said I wasn't going to bring the Black Panther back uh, in this episode, but Couldn't you, resist. You, you just opened that window wide with this one. <laughs> it's the exact kind of scene that we're talking about. You get to see him in action in yeah. uh, a scene that relates to the rest of the story, but gives you a separate quick narrative that resolves and then it moves on with the rest of the story. Good stuff. So yeah, so that's my vote this week for the uh, cannot look away. Always got to watch it. Never get tired of it. Uh movie or scene you could almost uh, pick the start out of the last five or six marvel movies and put a little montage of beginning scenes together that would be uh that'd be fun somebody's probably done it we gotta search youtube because that would be nice into the take-home top three yeah so for this week's take-home top three i asked you to think about uh tv or movies or series or episodes and the music that made them and uh try and give me your top three movies or tv shows that were just completely uh made by the soundtracks yeah this was a long long process for me in which i decided i couldn't actually do exactly what you had described for me because coming up with a top three was going to be uh horribly difficult i fell down not just one rabbit hole but several separate rabbit holes of television movies 
individual scenes, intro songs, and uh, it really wound up in a bit of a, a mess in which I couldn't complete the exact <laughs> assignment, so I've kind of retooled the assignment so that I could do it. Okay, I, 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 I'm sorry I broke your brain with my vague and interesting challenge. Uh, how did you reframe this to be something that you could actually handle? All right. Well, I started with the first one that as soon as you gave me the assignment, I was like, well, this is going to be on the list. So I was like, all right, I've got number one and I'll do that. So the first one is Star Wars, but okay. not any one Star Wars, but no. the it, soundtrack to the entire uh, main saga all mm-hmm. of John Williams scores running through what we've got now of eight films of Star Wars movie because the music for those films sets the the tone and each of the sort of three main songs from it hits you in a very different way so starting with the main title which has been the main mm-hmm. title for all eight of the films sure those first lines every time I've been in a theater and saw a new Star Wars movie those first lines of that main title song just makes me giddy it's like i'm here and i'm ready to watch a star wars movie and i know that because i just heard those few beats of that beginning like there's no getting away from that i'm here for a star wars movie yeah absolutely i also love that the last couple of movies i feel like his work with some of the new themes is just as strong. I love, uh, I love Ray's theme. He's still doing it, and it all, it all works together in a, in a great magical way. So the second song that reoccurs again through all of the Star Wars movie is what's called the Force theme, but I think is really called the Binary Sunset because okay. the first time you get it is uh, that scene where Luke's standing against the two suns setting on Tatooine. Yep. It actually plays a little tiny bit when Princess Leia is putting the plans into R2-D2, but it plays out Mm. for the first time in the saga. And uh, I looked into it. It originally was intended to be Ben Kenobi's theme song, but it sort of just became the general theme for The Force. And it's Mm -hmm. sort of just that slow building. Yeah, fantastic. And then the last one is the Imperial March because it's just so iconically Star Wars. And basically people call it Darth Vader's theme, which it is. It it's mm-hmm. what they use every time he comes back. And then when they did the prequels, uh, Williams initially wrote sort of an Anakin Skywalker theme. And then uh, if you watch through them, he eventually just abandoned it and started using the Imperial March for him. <laughs> but for me as a kid, after that first uh, appeared in Empire Strikes Back, I mean, it became the theme song for every bad guy in my mind. Like every bad yeah. guy entering the screen enters the screen to that Imperial March song. Now, I I do have to interrupt here with my own personal anecdote because I've always loved soundtracks uh, and scores. And the first score I ever had on vinyl was Return of the Jedi. Yep. Which, um, for all the wonder and awesomeness of John Williams' score, that particular gem contains both the Nyub Nyub uh, Ewok (laughs) theme and, and the Jabba the Hutt. Uh, palace song and i'll give you points if you can name that song no it's called lapty neck (laughs) (laughs) anyways i only know that because i had the album that's the one that has the recurring sound of that little creature that sits by jabba's side squawking throughout it (laughs) oh yeah that's right 
Salacious crumb. <laughs> so generally, though, Williams created over 50 different reoccurring themes for characters and places in the movie. And as I was sort of doing this review and thinking about it, I was wondering how close you could get to just listening to the soundtrack and picking out places and scenes from the movie. I think probably mm. pretty close. Yeah, I bet, uh, you know, we could probably queue up uh, a whole lot of bits of soundtrack that would that you or I could identify specifically as being a, a given scene. So Williams did all of the main saga films. Uh, the He is doing the hand solo theme for the upcoming solo movie, although not the full score. And I saw a report this week, which I confirmed through a little research, that he says that uh, episode nine will be his last score for the Star Wars franchise. So I should continue with this challenge before uh, we use up too much of our time here. For sure. So what's number two? So this is where I sort of lost the challenge was that uh, after doing Star Wars uh, to come up with a two and a three was just impossible. So I decided I would do one TV and one movie one. So the uh, TV one is uh, my so-called life. Oh, okay. This uh, was a short-lived show, 1994 to 1995, starring Claire Danes as the main character, Angela. You remember this show, obviously. I did. I think I was kind of late to the party. I think I picked it up on DVD or something like that. Uh, Man, this uh, show kind of crushed me on a week-to-week basis in that I had a love-hate relationship with it in that I really, really liked it, but it was so close, I thought, to what it was actually like being a teenager that it was also kind of painful to watch, Mm. especially, uh, I guess, by 94, I was like six, seven years removed from it, but it was still close Mm -hmm. enough that it uh, hit me pretty hard. So what would some of the songs that uh, that they used? I assume we're talking about use of songs yep. and not... Uh... So I just, uh, part of the reason why I'm picking this particular show is because there were three ways in which they used set music in that Mm -hmm. show, which I thought made it very unique. So they would use music as they typically do in TV and movies to either uh, set up or end a scene. So you'd either have a song going into a scene or a song coming out of a scene. They would also use uh, music behind a scene to set tone for the scene and then frequently throughout the show they would use incidental music that was actually playing in the scene for the characters themselves as well so a radio playing music or sometimes the characters were were singing or singing along so this is they only had one season and it's only 19 episodes because they actually got cut short but just a, a short list of the bands in those 19 episodes R.E.M. The Cranberries, The Grateful Dead, Buffalo Tom, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Juliana Hadfield, The Lemonheads, The Archers of Loaf, Urge Overkill, Afghan Wigs, The Ramones, The Violent Femmes, Sonic Youth, and Live, all running through the background of this song. And I mean, those were the songs that I was listening to in that period of time when I was going through the same things that they were going through in the show. And so it was the stories bring you back, the music brings you back, and it all just worked so well together. Awesome. That's a great example. All right. Well, hopefully people can check that out. And if not, I'm sure you can find a a playlist or something that would uh, let you pull up some of those tunes. Yep, absolutely. 
For number three, again, not really a top three list, but I decided to go with a movie. And since I'd gone with an entire series of movies for number one and an entire season of television for number two, I thought I would go to a specific scene in a movie. And mm, okay. this itself was exceedingly difficult in terms of picking out one. And what I happened upon, unfortunately, feel like it's kind of obvious but once I hit upon it, I couldn't get away from it. And I'll put the okay. link up because I watched it over and over and over again and kept going back to it until I decided this is the one. So the movie is High Fidelity. Mm -hmm. uh, this is the uh, romantic comedy uh, based on Nick Hornby's novel of the same name. The stars John Cusack as the character Rob, who runs a vinyl shop. Yeah. And... It's the scene where they're all hanging. It's a Saturday afternoon in the record store and they're all hanging around. He's talking with the two other guys that work there and he looks at the one guy and says, I will now sell five copies of the three EPs by the beta band. And he puts on the song Dry the Rain and you watch as this song sort of washes over the people in the store and yeah. the infectious way in which you see people looking at records or talking or doing whatever and finally catch on to this song and then they just sort of start moving to the music and one guy looks over and says who is this and Cusack says it's the beta band it's really good and Cusack just looks at him and says I know I loved that idea of unintentionally discovered music yeah that you find something that you're like you've never heard before we talked about it a couple of episodes ago where I talked about hearing a deer tick in a coffee shop right and that was just an example of hearing it in a record store, in a coffee shop, or even at a, a friend's place who just puts on something that you that catches you immediately. And I don't know, I kind of had some nostalgia. The scene is nostalgic as well, because for a long time, those uh, record stores that I used to have those experiences in as a kid sort of disappeared with the big box stores that play these pre-programmed playlists designed to sell whatever the most uh, recent big hit is it's kind of come back around since vinyls had its resurgence where now you can go into those shops with that are selling a lot of vinyl and you're hearing a lot of uh yeah it's it's a great scene um and a, that, that whole movie is kind of a love affair to music lovers um but i the thing i like hearing about that scene is uh, i can remember being in a record store and wanting to ask what's on the what they're playing but you know not wanting to admit that i wasn't cool enough to know <laughs> yeah so i would have uh 20 minutes of runners up uh for this particular challenge which i won't get into <laughs> all right well it's good to know we can maybe loop back to that and maybe get a little more specific take on it and revisit the uh the joys of, of music and movies and tv yeah i think that's something we can get back to at some point cool have you got an assignment for me this week I am going to task you with coming up with the top three sequel, prequel, or reboot that is as good as or better than the original. Oh, okay. That should be fun. I like it. I like it. Well, I think that's about all we have time for this week. Catch us every Wednesday at www.totallysortof.com in the Podbean app or on Google Play, or in the iTunes store. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you, so uh, hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, 
at totally sort of, or you can email us hello at totally sort of.com. Even better, uh, comment on the episodes on the site, or even better than that, we would love if you'd go on the iTunes store or Google Play store and leave us a rating or review. Our intro song is Punk, used by permission from the artist Kabana Black. You can check the notes for links to him or to any of the things that we've talked about this week. Until next time, I'm Darren Hogan. And I'm Chris McInnes, and you've been listening to Totally Sort Of, the podcast. Talk to you later, buddy. You bet, pal.